Today's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 3 to chapter 4, verse 22. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful, so that he could beg from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, Look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them, but Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then, taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up and started to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, so they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the temple, beautiful gate of, beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. While he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran toward them in what is called Solomon's colonnade. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people. Fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our our own power or godliness? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. In this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. Therefore, repent and turn back, so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus, who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. You must listen to everything he tells you. And everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. In addition... All the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those after him, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God had God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. The word of the Lord. While they were speaking. While they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, 
Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. The word of the Lord. We're in a preaching series uh, that we've called Blueprint, and it's focused on uh, the book of Acts in the New Testament from which we just read from Acts 1 through 12. And as a church, we're focused on this book because it's a beautiful book. It's a masterpiece of literature, of ancient literature. It's actually the second volume of a two-volume work uh, written by an early follower of Jesus named Luke. He wrote the book of Luke in the New Testament, and the second part of his work is called Acts. Uh, The first part, which is called Luke, was compiled by eyewitness testimony. Uh, to the life and the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. And the second volume, Acts, uh, is about how after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' followers began to take his teachings to the ends of the earth. So one of the central claims, if not the central claim of Christianity, is that in the early part of the first century, Jesus of Nazareth was killed by the religious and political elites of Jerusalem for claiming to be God. And then three days later, he miraculously arose from death. The implications of that reality, the implications of the resurrection of the Christian faith, are inexhaustible. Uh, We could spend hours and days working through the implications of the resurrection. In fact, most of the New Testament, if you read it closely you come to realize that most of the New Testament is actually um, designed to explain and to talk about and to show what the resurrection means, why it matters for your life. 
but one implication, and that's the implication that I want to focus on this morning, is the implication of power, that Jesus' resurrection unleashed a new power into the world, a new power. And that's what this story is all about. You see that in, in the story. I hope you saw it this morning, didn't you? This theme of power. Uh, we could talk a lot about it, but there's a couple of places that come out directly from the text. Um, the people in Acts 3 and 4, the characters in this story, are obsessed with this concept of power. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 12, when Peter saw this, the crowds being in awe of what had happened, he spoke to the, the, the audience there and said, Fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power? And then if you flip over to uh, chapter 4, verse 7, the ruling class, the Sanhedrin, the religious elite of Jerusalem, uh, rather than astonishment and amazement at the power demonstrated through Peter and John, were actually annoyed uh, by the power. So in verse 7, they are asking, they're inquiring, uh, they're interrogating them on, on what power they were using to heal this man. So today, even though this is a huge text, it's a long story, even though a lot could be said about it, I want to zero in on that theme of power. And we'll do that by asking and answering three questions this morning. So first, uh, what's the source of the power? Where is this power from? And then second, what's the power for? And then third, how do you and I access this power? So where's the power from? What is it for? And how do I access it? Question one, what's this power, where is this power from? First, I want to do this. As I was thinking about this text and thinking about uh, this idea or theme of power that is interwoven throughout the text, I began to think, what, what is this concept of power? We talk about it a lot in the culture. You see it here in Scripture. The New Testament is full of this idea that Jesus' resurrection has unleashed a new kind of power into the world. What is it? What is power? It's sort of an abstract concept for me. I don't know if that's true of you. Power is the capacity to affect reality. It's the capacity to physically, emotionally, and spiritually influence the world around us. Now, if you're like me, I hear definitions like that, and I say, oh, that's too abstract for me. I don't know what that means. Um, but think about, for those of you who maybe work outside the home, or maybe those of you who work inside the home, there are power dynamics going, in, going on inside of whatever organization or institution that you're a part of. Think about power at work in an organization. There are people in your workplace who have legitimate power because they are in a higher position over people who are in a lower position, and they have control over people who are in a lower position. There's also the power of being an expert. Uh, think about your workplace. If there are people with the right academic pedigree, the right degrees, or maybe the right experience, they usually have uh, some form of status and influence and power. There's also connectional power. Think about the power and influence, the ability to affect reality that a colleague might have who attains that influence and ability simply by gaining favor with people who are in positions of authority. Uh, you, we all know these people that have, that have the ability to connect with the higher-ups, and therefore they have a certain degree of uh, power and leverage within the organization or the institution. There pa there's power in networks. Power is the capacity to affect reality. 
So in our passage today, there's two hints, there's at least two hints about where people look for to find and access power. They're looking for the source of power, and there's two hints about where people find that, both, I think, in the ancient world and in our modern context. And then what Luke does is show us the one place where it's found. So for some people, power comes from looking out. Many people look out outside of themselves to find power. They look for it in external structures or institutions or rituals or perhaps even strong leaders. For first century people, and you read about this all through the book of Acts, for first century people, both Jews and pagans, power came from the temple or from temples. Um, See, for the Jews living in Jerusalem, the center of Judaism in the first century was the temple. The source of power was the temple for two reasons. First, it was only in the temple where legitimate sacrifices could be offered to God. Uh, that, That was a belief of Judaism. They believed that only in the temple could you offer legitimate sacrifices to God. And those sacrifices were the means by which people established a powerful connection with God with the God of the Bible, with the God of the Old Testament, with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The temple was where you had powerful access to that God. Second, the temple was the place where God had caused his name to dwell. It was was at the site of the temple, at the building of the temple, at that site where God had said, this is where I will meet you powerfully with my presence. So the temple was the place where you could connect with God and the place where you could, be, you could meet his presence, uh, where God's powerful presence was, was supposed to meet with humanity. Now, for 21st century people, and particularly, I think, for people living in the modern, secular West, uh, temples in that traditional sense are sort of out of style. But we still have our own temples. Let me suggest something to you. We still have places and priesthoods that we look to in order to put us in touch with power. Let me just suggest one. I have to go quickly this morning, so let me just suggest one. Silicon Valley. A couple years ago, I read a fascinating and disturbing book called To Be a Machine, Adventures Among Cyborgs, Utopians, Hackers, and the Futurists Solving the Modest Problem of Death. Uh, This book, To Be a Machine, was written by a journalist, Mark O'Connell, and it's his account of a growing movement in Silicon Valley and other places in the world called transhumanism. Uh, And rather than explain to you what transhumanism is, I'll give you a couple of examples. There are people like uh, the PayPal PayPal founder and Facebook investor Peter Thiel, who is pumping millions of dollars into the cause of extending human lifespans. See, Thiel's belief is that computational power can be brought increasingly to bear on our biology, on life itself, giving us the capacity to, quote, reverse all human ailments in the same way that we can fix the bugs of a computer program. Thiel says death will eventually be reduced from a mystery to a solvable problem. You see what Thiel's saying there, that we can... We can use computational power, the power of technology. We can harness that and utilize that to enter into a kind of eternal life. 
Google's head of engineering, uh, Ray Kurzweil, takes 150 pills a day and is predicting that if he can make it to age 120, he will live forever because he's living on the presumption that a rapid increase of knowledge and technology will eventually learn how to restore the body's molecular and cellular structure. Now, what I'm not saying is that developments in technology or medicine or science should be dismissed. In fact, followers of Jesus should be actively pursuing callings and careers in these, in these industries, in, in, in this world, because God works through them to bring about human and global flourishing. But that's different than looking to technology, looking to medicine as the ultimate source of power to transform the world into something better. So we look, we look sometimes to temples, but we also sometimes in our modern world look to technology to access power. So some people look out. Others look in. Other people look inward. They don't look out, they look inward. They look to their own sense of piety or their own sense of self-worth. See, for first century people, like uh, uh, the, 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 the Jews... Uh, power could also come from within, not just from the temple, but all, also within. Look at Acts 3.12, when Peter begins to address the crowd. This is why Peter is deflecting attention away from himself and challenging the idea that his own spirituality or his own godliness or his own piety is the source of his power. And as an aside... Uh, Peter knows, and anyone who's familiar with Peter's story knew that power didn't come from him. In fact, this is actually why the religious elite are so confounded and so amazed and annoyed uh, by Peter's public testimony because he was an uneducated blue-collar fisherman. Now, that's, that's one way in which first century people saw power as something that came from your own personal uh, uh, religiosity or piety. But for 21st century people, power uh, not only comes from without, we look to technology and the right tools to bring about a better world, but we also look to the self. Uh, we look to the self. And you can find this stuff all over. I was traveling back from Manhattan yesterday, uh, browsing Twitter, as one is wont to do uh, on, a, on a long plane ride, and I came across an article from Inc. Magazine, and this was the title, Following the 90-10 Rule will make you noticeably more self-confident. Following the 90-10 rule will make you noticeably more self-confident. And the basic idea is this, this author is explaining. Most of us seek confidence and power through external validation and approval. Most of us seek power and connection and approval through the validation of other people. And what this author was saying is that it leaves us constantly in a state of anxiety over what everyone out there thinks. I'm sure you can relate to that. But this author says you should focus first and foremost on the North Star in your own universe, your own standards. Don't live up to other people's standards. Live up to your own standards. So what this author is saying is the 90-10 rule is a formula for calculating your worth, your personal worth. 90% should be self-worth and 10% should be assigned worth. This stuff is all over. You can, you can browse Twitter and come across dozens and hundreds of articles like this where people advise or suggest tapping into your own inner power, 
your own inner sense of self-worth, turning inward to yourself. Some people look out, some people look in. And this passage in Acts says that the true source of power is by looking up. Power comes from looking up. You see what Peter is saying here in this passage? If you want to know the source of this power, the source that's at the heart of the universe, you have to know where God's power is, the God of the Bible. You have to know where God's power is housed, where it dwells, where it lives. And look, we all need to know, power sounds so abstract, but we all need to know where the source of real power is. We need it because this world is a mess, because our lives are a mess, because we constantly have this this sense of our own powerlessness that we are unable to affect reality, that we are unable to change circumstances. I've spoken with some of you, and you have relationships that are a disaster, and you don't know what to do. You're powerless. Your kids have either strayed from Christianity or are just bored with the entire thing. And you're powerless to do anything about it. You're in a job where people are abusing their power and you feel powerless to change the system. Peter's point is that true power, divine power, God's power is not housed in temples or techniques of self-empowerment, but in the person of Jesus Christ. That power is housed, it's located in a person, Jesus of Nazareth. That's where, the, that's where power comes from, from Jesus. Uh, so what's the power for? If question one is where is the power f- from, it's from Jesus. Then the second question is what is this power for? The demonstration of power here in Acts 3 and 4, this miraculous healing of this crippled and disabled beggar points us to two realities. It points us to two realities. First, the healing of this man is, is, is a prophetic pointer to the cosmic healing of all physical brokenness and decay. The healing of this one man is a, is a pointer. It's a sign that's pointing to the ultimate, the cosmic healing of the entire universe. That's Peter's claim in chapter 3, verse 21, that Jesus' rule and reign in heaven will eventually result in the restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. See, in the Old Testament, there are hundreds of passages that speak about a time when all things will be put back to rights, when the lion will lie down with the lamb, a time when the blind will see, when the deaf will hear, when the lame will walk, One example of that is what we read in our call to worship from Isaiah 35. The lame man will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. See, the Old Testament prophesied a time when everything would be made right. Everything would be restored. An ultimate healing would come. And these last days that the Old Testament spoke about were nearly always associated with the arrival of what the Bible calls the Messiah a chosen and anointed one who would not only set things right, but actually vanquish the powers who caused the world to go out of whack, to spin out of control. Why does that matter? It matters because miracles in the Bible 
are not just some expression of brute strength. They're not a naked display of God's divine majesty and power. They're not God overriding the laws of the universe in some kind of show of superior strength. They're ultimately about the alleviation of suffering. Miracles in the Bible are always about the alleviation of human and global suffering. They're about setting right what's wrong, repairing what's been broken. You see, Christianity teaches that God made the world good, that he made it free from pain and blindness and disease and disabilities. But due to the treason and evil of humanity against God and against his rules and against his way of operating in the world, we are all experiencing alienation from the true source of power, from God himself. Doesn't that make sense? If humanity and the world is disconnected and alienated from the author of life, from the source of life, from the source of true power, then it makes sense that if that source of life comes on the scene, arrives into the story, if that chosen and anointed one finally comes back and enters into his world, then things would be put to right. But what happens in the text? Peter explains that when the source of life, when the author of life comes into the world, we kill him, we destroy him. So why wouldn't creation be all out of whack? There's, there's at least one takeaway here. Uh, and the takeaway is this. Through this sign, you know, we know that God cares about the material world. God cares about your body. God cares about alleviating human suffering. He's no happier with all of the brokenness that you see, that I see, that we experience. He's no more happier about it than we are. And the goodness of Christianity, the hope of Christianity, is that God will restore and repair all of it one day. There's power at work in the story. The healing of this man points to a cosmic healing of all physical brokenness. That's one reality. But the power is also for something else. It also points to the personal healing, the personal healing of all spiritual brokenness. What do I mean? Well, notice what the beggar was primarily interested in. He was interested in some, some spare change. That's why he was at the, at the beautiful gate. He was there day after day begging for money. And what did God give him? The ability to walk. You could say that the man was searching after one kind of power, financial power, the ability to exist another day. But God gave him something entirely more beautiful, the ability to dance. It was something better than he could ever even imagine. And that's the way with God, isn't it, friends? We are often looking for alleviation for our suffering now, but God wants to offer us something infinitely more valuable. What do I mean? This man's physical condition, and oftentimes in the Bible when you read of a healing, um, a physical healing, oftentimes in Scripture, those physical healings reflect God's love of our body, that he wants to alleviate human suffering, but they point also beyond themselves to our spiritual condition. See, this man was disabled in his body, 
But the Bible's claim is that we are all disabled in our hearts. We are constantly looking to sources of power that we think will fix our problems, but they actually won't. The disabled man thought that if he had money, he'd be happy. But you know, you and I know that there are people in this world, people sitting in this room today that have the ability to walk and all the money in the world and they're still miserable. Why? Why? Because the Bible says that our deepest, most fundamental problem is sin. Sin is a kind of spiritual disease. It disables us. It affects everything that we do and touch. It warps our ability to affect reality. It twists the ways in which we desire power, whether that power is significance or money or control. But it's not just something that works in or upon us as some sort of um, force on our lives. What Acts 3 and 4 says is that we actively choose it. We actively choose this spiritual disease. See, Peter in his sermon, he's speaking, step back for a moment. Peter is speaking to the most powerful religious authority in his day in Jerusalem. The people that, in which all the power was housed. And notice what he says to them in Acts 4. That they've ulti- their ultimate sin is the rejection of Jesus. The cornerstone the ultimate power in the universe. Sin is not, it's not just the thing that disables us. It's actually this this disability that we choose. We reject Jesus. We straight arm Jesus. We don't want Jesus' power in our life. See, Jesus is saying through Peter and through John, that my ultimate power has come to bring healing to you, has come to cleanse you of this disease of sin, this disability that, that warps your heart to search to lust after and desire after power that doesn't belong to you, that distorts my world, that distorts our relationships. Jesus says, I've come to bring healing to you. So we saw first that power comes from God in the person of Jesus. And second, that power is for the purposes of not only the restoration of all things, but also the restoration of our own hearts, our disabled hearts, our crippled hearts. So the question is, the final question is, the third question is, how do you and I access this power? The heartbeat of this story is, because, is that because of the resurrection of Jesus, there's a new power unleashed in the world. It's a power with the ability not only to change and repair all things, but it's a power with the ability to change your life right now. Your life in the present. How do you access it? Very simply, repentance and faith. You repent and you trust. I'm getting that from Peter's preaching, Acts 3.19. Repent, therefore, and Acts 3.16. Faith in Jesus' name has made this man strong, and the faith that is through Jesus had, has given this man perfect health. Do you see? Do you see? You want access to the power of the universe to the person of Jesus of Nazareth who is reigning as king of the world, you repent and you believe. 
In, the, in our few remaining minutes, I want to zoom in on those two responses. First, you repent. I know that for myself and perhaps many of you, that may just be kind of spiritual jargon that you equate with Christianity or religion, but see what repentance is defined by through Peter's sermon. It's a turning back. It's a recognition that all our pursuit of power and control and status and significance is killing us. It's killing you because you're ultimately not connected to the source of life, to the author of life. But look, repentance is also, it's also a form of weakness. It's a form of giving up power. What do I mean? Peter says that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah appointed for you, to whom we should listen to whatever he says. That's what Peter says. He's the prophet. He's the anointed one. And you should listen to everything that he has to say. You know what that means? It means that you and I are not in charge of our own life. We don't have power over our own destiny. You are not the author of your story. Jesus is. That means you are not in control. He is. Are you laying down your power, your control, and are you submitting to his will, to his words? Friends, if there's one thing in our world needs today, it's repentance for our desire and lust after power. We need to repent of the ways that we have used privilege to, in whatever form, the ways that we've used privilege to, uh, that are afforded to us because of education, class, race, to only benefit ourselves at the expense of our neighbor. We need to repent of the ways in which we use people as means to an end. We need to repent of the ways that we try to maintain a public image for the purposes of social power. See, friends, without repentance, we have what we've seen in the, in the news for the last few weeks, a lust for political power, whether you're on the right or the left, this desire to be in power, to take control, to dominate the other. Without repentance for this obsession with power, you have a powerful clergy and pastors who manipulate and exploit and abuse others. Without repentance, you have the results of what I saw this past week at the 9-11 memorial, an unstoppable drive to dominate and control even at the cost of thousands of lives. We need this repentance. You and I need this to turn back to submit our lives underneath the rule and reign of the source of life, the author of life. Second, you access the power by faith in his name. What does that mean, the name? What is this, what is this, this idea of the name that keeps coming up? It's the name of Jesus. It's just another way of saying the reality of Jesus. His name stands for who he is, what he has accomplished. So faith in his name, faith in the reality of Jesus, means trusting all of your reality into the reality of Jesus. Look, if power is all about the ability to affect change, the ability to affect reality, the capacity to do something, to achieve a result, then faith, then trust, is the exact opposite of that. 
It's the recognition and rest in the results of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, in the person of Jesus. It's leaning your entire life into Jesus' capacity, Jesus' ability, not your own. Let me close here. What does that faith look like? What does that faith look like? I want to focus just in closing on Peter's example because this is remarkable. If you know the story of Peter, you know it's remarkable. After, after God uses Peter and John to heal this man, and after, Pe- after Peter's preaching, they get arrested by the religious leaders. They do an incredible deed and find themselves put on trial. They do an incredible deed and they find themselves put on trial. Does that sound familiar? It should because several months earlier, Jesus of Nazareth did three years of remarkable wonders and powerful deeds and signs and found himself on trial in front of the same men in this room, the Sanhedrin, the religious elite. He was in the same exact situation. And Peter is standing before that very court that condemned his Messiah to death. But look at Peter. He's a totally new person When Jesus was on trial, Peter was hiding in the shadows, denying he even knew Jesus. And now look at him. He's bold, he's courageous, he's winsome, and he's challenging the very power structure at the heart of Jerusalem and at the heart of the Roman Empire. In Jesus' trial, Peter was shaken to his core, fearful of death, paralyzed by the possibility of a guilty verdict. But here in this text, verdicts, and public opinion and his personal reputation are of no consequence. Why? Why is that? Because Peter knew. Peter knew the source of ultimate power. Peter knew that there was a power in the universe that was offered, that offered infinitely more resources than wealth or social political position. Peter had been in the presence of Jesus. He knew Jesus saved not by grasping power, but by losing it. Jesus came homeless and poor and powerless without social privilege and ultimately faced the ridicule and powerlessness of the cross. And yet, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians? That it's in the cross that you see the power of God. It's in the weakness of God that you see true strength. It's in the death of God that you see life coming into the world. Do you want a power like that? Do you want a power that will make your heart leap today and that will make your body leap into eternity, dancing and praising and joyfully celebrating before God into eternity? Then go and learn what this means. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. Amen.